is my seat, Steph. Wow, this is all quite new to me, so excuse me if I seem to my fumbling my way through things. Uh, I would like to acknowledge that the land that we meet on today is the traditional lands of the Ghana people, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Jess Taylor. Uh, Jess has recently opened her exhibition Primordial at Hugo Michel Gallery last Thursday, and that show runs through till April 2nd. So if you haven't been along to see it yet, stay for the talk, but once it's over, seize the opportunity to get out and see that exhibition because it's really wonderful. Uh, Jess is not just a graduate from this school, but she is also a lecturer here. She completed her honours in 2013. She's also completed a master's at UniSA and been, uh, enjoyed a residency at Ace Open Studios. But I won't say too much about Jess's bio because I do want her to talk a little bit about her journey out of art school. So if you could just join me in welcoming Jess today. I might have given you a little bit of a suggestion as to what the first question might be, but do you want to talk to us a little bit about what your, your journey out of art school was like? And Yeah. Um, so I suppose, you know, like Andrew said, I completed my honours here in 2013 um, and kind of the career that I wanted and had envisioned for myself was one of a kind of practising, exhibiting artist. So that has been my career focus to date. Um, that... 2014, the year after I graduated, I had my first solo show at Felt Space. Um, I also joined my first artist studios. So for at least the first few years out of art school, that was a really kind of important part of my practice and part of me finding my feet as a practitioner was finding these spaces where I could work alongside other artists um, and kind of continue to get that, that feedback and that peer atmosphere that I'd had in art school um, I also presented a kind of large installation work at Caxer in that year. Um, and kind of one of my other life goals as well was to have children. So at the end of 2014, I had my first child. Uh, 2015 was kind of me getting back on my feet a bit. I was in a few group shows, um, but kind of got back into things in 2016. So I had a solo exhibition at Floating Goose Gallery and also started my Masters by Research at UniSA. Um, I'd also always had this kind of idea that I'd really like to lecture one day and having that postgraduate degree was a kind of prerequisite for that. Uh, so that was one reason I went into the master's program, but also I really wanted to kind of extend this research I'd done so far on this idea of the interplay between visual arts and horror. You know, horror being something we consider a very kind of filmic or literature-based genre. Uh, so that's what my master's was about. It was looking at how visual arts might perform the social function of horror. Uh, I did that through and graduated in 2018, but that whole kind of postgraduate degree was really great. It gave me the freedom to exhibit quite widely. So I had shows in Adelaide, the ACT, Tasmania, Melbourne. Um, I collaborated with another artist in 2018 as well that I really respect called Deborah Pryor. Um, and we had this kind of great collaborative exhibition that we held in Melbourne and in Felt Space in late 2018. I also gave birth to my second child at the end of that year, so a very busy year for me. Um, and 2019 was the year that I was awarded the Ace Open Studio Residency. So that ran for a year. I got a supported studio space above Ace Open, which was amazing. Um, 
And yeah, that was another kind of opportunity to have that peer support of a kind of new group of artists. Um, a lot of professional development opportunities offered by the staff at ACE to meet other artists and curators and so on. Um, I produced some more 3D printed work, which was shown in Melbourne. And I also started working on more virtual reality work, which was shown at MOD in 2019. 2020 was kind of a few group shows, you know, with COVID, it was kind of a <laughs> disaster year. Um, but in 2021, things have kind of kicked off again. I had a show at Jam Factory, which was quite a new kind of audience and, and context for my work, I suppose. Um, and that was the show that kind of led to Hugo Michel approaching me to have the exhibition, which I'm holding now in 2022. Um, it's a pretty stunning CV for <laughs> less than 10 years out of art school. And I don't almost assume... <laughs> almost, but not, not yet 10 years out of art school. And I, and I assume that, like, a lot of those opportunities, some of those were offered to you, but it sounds to me like you pursued a lot of those and were very sort of um, dedicated and did a lot of kind of entrepreneurial work and kind of getting your practice off the ground and exhibiting widely. Yeah, I think it certainly, from my perspective, that kind of initiative particularly in the beginning, was really important. Um, you know, I feel like I'm kind of just at the point in my career where that momentum has paid off and, you know, now people might approach me to do things where, you know, in the early days it was things like oh, getting a NAVA membership so I could check the opportunities obsessively and apply for things and, you know, throwing many stones at one target and hoping one would hit um, and that kind of thing. Um, and of course, in between that, like learning how to go about approaching funding opportunities so that I could do all of these things. Um, so yeah, early days was a lot of kind of, I guess, it being driven by myself, um, but also a lot of kind of luck and, and opportunities that I've been given as well. Mm. But I think I can also detect that looking at your practice, this sense of... Um, there's no resting on your laurels there and it's really interesting to look at the mediums that you use because a lot of people will be familiar with your 3D printed work but to go back to some of your, even during your graduate work there was quite a lot of sculptural work but there was quite a lot of interesting materials like lenticular prints and even now you're working with virtual reality. Do you want to talk mm -hmm. about your approach to, to materials and processes? Yeah, I suppose, you know, the, the kind of uniting... Um, uniting kind of feature of the, the materials I'm drawn to or the materials that I use, I kind of group them as all being these representational digital technologies. So, um, yeah, the lenticular prints, which for those who aren't familiar, it's kind of those really dodgy holographic, you'd see them in bookmarks and placemats and stuff. And I, I'm a huge fan of gimmicks, so I love all that stuff. Um, but then also like I've explored a lot of kind of glitch techniques with video art and photography, um, a lot of 3D scanning, which is the basis for my virtual reality works. Um, I suppose I'm just, I'm really interested in technology that tries to capture something about the real world. And I'm interested in the ways that it really falls short at the moment. We're not quite at that technological point where these things produce convincing replicas of the real world. And so I'm, I'm more interested in technology that tries and fails than technology that, that succeeds at its aims, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that I feel that I observe about your work is the sense that the, 
you know, the lenticular print is an interesting thing, but it talks about visuality, that sort of ability as the body moves through space to get a different perspective on something, to move around a sculpture or to move through a virtual reality environment does the same. But as you say, interested in this kind of glitch quality of technology failing, it feels that you're also interested in that materiality of the technology. And I think that comes through in the 3D prints very yeah, much. Yeah, I, I think certainly. I think, you know... Um, it's something that I'm always kind of trying to describe that that perhaps is difficult for people to to get a handle on. But even the way that I kind of design my 3D printed works, like the models that, that are used to create those works and stuff, there is this kind of digital tactility, for want of a better word. There, there's a way that you, you know, manipulate these 3D objects in this 3D space that is kind of bodily but kind of not. It's this weird kind of interplay between us and these technological interfaces. Um, but, yeah, and, and certainly that kind of... The way that we interact with technology, I think, is, is so important. You know, all the technologies that exist are kind of a reflection on us and what we want. Um, and so even when they don't go quite right, there's something I find really kind of endearing and engaging in that we tried to get this thing to do something for us. We tried to, to realise a part of ourselves or our, or our hopes in this technology. And even if it kind of fell over, I don't know, I find that a very human mm. thing. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that seeing it as an object helps people sort of translate and understand the digital in some ways. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the actual sort of mechanics of how one goes about creating a sculpture like that? Because it's, it's very different from a lot of the processes that... Uh, students are likely to encounter at art school. Yeah. Um, so I suppose that's the thing. I kind of got into 3D modelling and 3D printing in my honours year. Um, at the time, I was looking at the kind of failures and slippages that occur when we try and capture something real with technology. So I was taking these not very good blurry photographs and stuff like that. Um, but then once I kind of came across 3D printing, I was like, oh, there must be a way to, to make real stuff into 3D models. Like, how do I kind of go about that? So I've tested a lot of different ways of doing that. Um, one of the primary, I suppose, ways I do that in my practice is a process called photogrammetry, which is you take a whole bunch of photos of something, feed it into a 3D program, and that program tries to figure out what it's looking at and, and give you a model. Um, a lot of the models that you see, you know, my 3D printed works, they were made from a much higher grade 3D scan of myself. I was actually scanned when I was pregnant with my first child. So you can see on some of them, I've got kind of a belly going on, um, which is a nice kind of moment in time in my work. Um, but I had this really good 3D scan done and I had that model rigged up, which is basically uh, a poseable skeleton gets attached to it in 3D programming. It's the same thing that happens to like video camera characters that allows them to walk and, and move and so on. Um, so I use that kind of base model to, to pose it, save it, and kind of print it, duplicate it. Um, another thing that has been a reason why 3D modelling and 3D printing has been such a mainstay in my practice is there's so much ability to kind of interfere with, with that form in these programs. So, you know, I can cut it in half, I can hollow it out, I can turn it inside out, I can attach objects to them or take them away. There's just um, kind of limitless opportunities to do things to my body that the real world doesn't quite allow me to do. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> um, uh, and it's really interesting, looking back to some of your earliest experiments 
with that medium, how sophisticated the latest works look by comparison. Is it something you've experienced, the technological advances in that medium? It's, it's quite dissimilar from oil painting, for instance, that your medium that you work in is changing continuously while you're working in it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, <laughs> there's two things that have kind of happened. One is there is this not so much increase in technological sophistication, more so like that sophistication becomes accessible to your average person um, because, you know, I don't have a multi-million dollar budget behind me or anything. Um, certainly a lot of... I get my work printed overseas. A lot of those printers are still just phenomenally outside of my price range. Um, but but nonetheless, over the years, it's, it's become more accessible and I've been able to experiment with materials and scale and so on. Um, I think the big part of it is... You know, I haven't received any formal training in this in this kind of material. It's all been kind of self-directed, bothering people that know way more than me and being like, how do I do this? Um, lots of YouTube tutorials. So also, I'm, I'm always in each exhibition, obviously, there's kind of a conceptual premise. But usually I'm also trying to think of some new aspect of modelling that I can kind of master and begin to play with. It's just an incredibly broad medium like there's so much you can do I feel like maybe I'm I'm exploring like 15% of it um, and there's always more things that I want to get a handle on yeah wonderful um, Jess you mentioned before your your master's research and I think that that's something that I really connect with in your work the horror and particularly body horror as I read it um, in the work plays a large part of your visual imagination what draws you back to that as a source of inspiration yeah um I think, like, you know, there's the, the kind of psychological reason of it being this very large looming interest that I've had since, you know, early childhood, which it definitely shouldn't have been, but it was, so here I am. Um, you know, it's it's always been something that I've I've really enjoyed and found fascinating, and I've always been really kind of confused as to why horror is a thing that exists, I suppose. It's always been a fascinating question for me. You know, this stuff isn't necessarily pleasant to watch. You know, I don't even enjoy it all the time, but it obviously does something for me. So a lot of my research was trying to unpick why does it exist? Why are we drawn to it? Why do we keep making it? It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me on the surface. Um, I think, you know, I'm very interested in, again, that kind of idea of horror performing a social function, so I think what horror does is it, it reveals a lot of social anxieties or social fears. It kind of gives form to them, symbolic form, but a form that we can start to kind of interpret and, and pull apart to kind of understand what's going on in a social context a bit better. Um, the other thing that I think it does really well is this genre that kind of sits on the outside of acceptability is it allows us to kind of question and challenge a lot of those you know, dominant social ideas that we have. You know, a lot of monster stories are kind of about challenging the status quo and taking down power structures and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I suppose politically I'm very drawn to that aspect of it. Um, the kind of body horror aspect, because so much of my work, you know, I'm cutting myself in half or, or something like that. Um, you know, I think I've become really attracted to this kind of symbolic narrative, the symbolic language that permeates a lot of horror. You know, we have ideas 
if we see someone turn into a vampire, we kind of know what that's about. We know what socially that's indicating to us. If we see someone, you know, become disfigured, we've got ideas about what that's telling us. And so uh, a lot of my work, I'm using this language to talk about, I suppose, my own experiences or my own thoughts and feelings about myself um, in this language that hopefully people can start to decode because it relies so much on existing cultural things out there. Hmm. And I think it's a really interesting thing to translate horror, which we normally encounter in popular culture in sort of time-based media, and the things that uh, an object does in relation to horror, the opportunity to shock or startle um, kind of evaporates, but maybe you gain something in that ability to contemplate, as you say, its representation as a symbol. You can linger with it a little bit longer. Um, sorry, did you... Oh, that's just me talking that wasn't a question digesting it. <laughs> um, but looking at your works I suppose that the tableaus are, are often recognizably troubling the body is often heavily distorted but sometimes I feel like the references that are being made are less to, say, horror cinema and maybe a tradition of ways of painting and depicting the body that hones in on the visceral or the uh, disturbed. Thinking about artists like Goya or Soutine or Francis Bacon, even the Chapman brothers. Is that a lineage of art practice that you see yourself operating within? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was kind of a... First hurdle, I suppose, in my research that I kind of established, like I kind of felt quite at home with the idea that horror has always lived in the arts. You know, it didn't just appear as soon as we invented the camera. Um, but that's not necessarily where everyone else is at in terms of their, their ideas of visual arts and horror. So I kind of had to go through this process of, of establishing this long-held relationship between the two. Um, and so I... I think in the early days I was doing a lot of works that referred to explicit, explicitly to older artworks like Goya, who I love and I'm obsessed with. Um, you know, the Chapman brothers are like my heroes. I just, I, I really like them. Um, but I think the Chapman brothers in particular, why I kind of isolate them as my artistic heroes is there's something really in the sensibility of horror that they kind of get, this excessiveness, um, it's very self-indulgent, in-your-face kind of, you know, seems a bit, seems a bit petulant uh, often in their work, and I say that very lovingly. Um, you know, but also this kind of absurdity and fun and, you know, provocation to engagement, which is, which is so important and something in a very different way that I try and do in my work as well because, you know, horror is, is based on this physical, visceral reaction we have. It can't really exist if it doesn't grab people to engage with it. Um, so, yeah, definitely artists like the Chapman Brothers as well. A lot of their work is kind of impossible to ignore um, and, and very obvious in the way that it's trying to goad you into engaging with it. And so that whole kind of sensibility I see is a very horror sensibility and, you know, one that I do try and, in a different way, incorporate in my works, I suppose. Yeah, and, and there are some explicit acknowledgements of sort of like Goya's uh, satin eating his children or the mm. horrors of war print series, which the Chapman brothers have also yes. engaged with. That I think that's a really nice aspect of your practice, this kind of recontextualizing of sometimes familiar imagery that we see from horror, but it takes on a very different reading when it's your body. 
Yeah, and I think like that was the the core thing. I did this series of appropriations of famous artworks with this kind of horror tilt to them, I suppose. Um, horror's always been a very self-referential genre, you know, like, oh, you can't understand this film unless you've like watched all these other films and, you know, there's all the lore and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think in looking at that kind of self-referential thing, which is also such a big thing in the visual arts, like there's so much you can't really comprehend unless you have this background knowledge. Um, because my works exclusively use my own body, I started to look at it as well, how does the context or meaning shift? So, you know, I did recreate a version of Saturn devouring his son, a 3D print with myself. And at the time, you know, I was having all these feelings about, you know, maternal burdens and, and what it is to, to kind of bring up a child and do all this with a baby and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it's such a different reaction to that work when it's a woman doing that oh, than absolutely. a man. They're both horrible, but one is horrible in a way that is more socially digestible, perhaps. And um, the fact that the scan, as you say, uh, was taken when you were pregnant, it is often a reading of that body, of your body, in those arrangements of being maternal. Yeah, definitely. Um, which, yeah, like at the time I was like, oh, what a happy coincidence. Um, but as I've kind of explored these things more, you know, it, it's such a big part of my experience that it's become such an integral part of the, the kind of emotional states the work draws on as well. So um, it's why I've been kind of loath to get a replacement scan made because, you know, I feel like it's so important, but... I'll get there one day, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a really other another interesting thing is that you work on... Am I right in thinking you work exclusively with your own image? Yeah. So in all these arrangements, you are both the perpetrator and the victim of the violence that is being committed. Mm. Is that... Where does that idea stem from or, or fit with your work? Yeah, so I think... At first, you know, like I, like you said, there's there's aggressors, there's victims in my work. Um, I, I had a great deal of discomfort around putting other people in those roles. Like it didn't, it wasn't something that I suppose I was kind of ethically comfortable with. You know, if someone comes into my studio and sees a, a picture of them getting bludgeoned to death, that's probably like pretty confronting. Um, <laughs> likewise, if I'm like, here's my painting of you as a murderer, like it's it wasn't really something that I I wanted to do. So. Um, I made that decision pretty early on in my studies that it would be me and me alone and that kind of gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted. You know, I could kind of call the shots and define the boundaries and what I'm comfortable with in terms of how my body is represented in these things. Um, and as my work has developed, this focus on my own experiences, my own thoughts or kind of internal states has has kind of become a main facet of the work and so... You know, to me, it just makes a degree of sense that it's it's all images of me because it's all about me, <laughs> as uh, egotistic as that sounds. No, yeah, but I think you raise a really good point that there are there is an ethical dimension to your practice, particularly when you're dealing with violence and horror and things that you do need to negotiate and work out. And I think that's a very sensible strategy of of dealing with those issues as well. Um, I really want to ask about the primordial show. And, mm. and we've got a lot of slides showing of, of some images from that show. Do you want to tell us where the, the ideas that underpin that exhibition came from? Yeah. Um, so I suppose it, it was probably around 2018 that I was kind of transitioning to this practice that was becoming much more explicitly about, you know, 
experiences and moments in time and, and kind of emotional states that I would kind of experience. Um, and this body of work came about kind of reflecting on a lot of these experiences and reflecting it kind of, I suppose, where I was at this current phase of my life. Um, and I was looking at these two kind of dual ways of considering that, like one that, you know, when we're born, we're kind of blank slates, stuff happens to us that turns us into the person that we are when we're adults. Um, but then also this other idea that perhaps, you know, there, there are these, these facets that are just waiting to kind of be revealed by life as you go through, that perhaps, you know, there are certain parts of my personality that had always been kind of buried there. Um, and certainly a lot of the works as well, they look at that through a kind of familial lens, like looking at how much of myself I can trace back through my father or my mother and things like that. Um, so the title Primordial was this, this kind of idea that I could represent facets of myself that had been there since baby Jess came into the world, perhaps, since, since I was a, an existence in the world. Um, and I feel like in this show I started to try and branch out a little bit beyond, I suppose, the more traditional horror symbolism that I'd brought in, um, but also to look at things like I was looking at a lot of creepy animals and fossils and just a lot of kind of these ancient, dreadful, real-life things that were kind of playing on my mind a lot. I don't know, maybe it was just ISO going <laughs> slightly mad or something. Um, but, yeah, the whole show was basically... You know, going through and picking out these, these kind of pivotal moments where I'm like, oh, that's when that part of me was crystallised, you know, or that's where that came from, and trying to kind of map out an explanation, <laughs> as absurd as that is, an explanation for the Jess you see before you today. <laughs> that's really interesting, because, I mean, my encounter of that show is that I was blown away by the sort of level of visual invention in there, and I think some of what you're saying about widening your scope of reference to think about biology and fossils and so forth the sort of the 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 tooth holes and things that like like emerge from those works are really stunning and i think they're really fascinating but it's really interesting to hear about that kind of thought process that underpins that was there any uh shift in your practice in shifting into this sort of more commercially geared realm or what has that process been like of, of having your first solo commercial show um, oh, look, it was one of those, like, I'm a big 10-year plan artist, so it's one of those things that I was always like, oh, one day I'll get a shot, you're going to show. Um, and kind of always, you know, hoped that would happen at some point in my career. I didn't necessarily expect it when it happened. Um, I, I think the first thing, like, when I kind of got offered the opportunity, I was like, oh, my God, I need to level up, like, so badly. Like, <laughs> i got to raise the stakes here or something. Um but, you know, I was very fortunate in that I got the Scammels grant. Um, so that did allow me to, to level up in these ways I've been playing with, increasing in scale and complexity and just time and in installation requirements and things like that. Um, in terms of the kind of, like, professional aspect, I suppose, like, they've actually made it kind of really easy <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, they've, they've been very well organised. I'm, I'm also very organised in my shows, you know, if you've had so many that you're responsible for, you know, the photography and the installation and this and that, like, you kind of develop a level of organisation. So um, that side wasn't necessarily something I was unfamiliar with. If anything, I was kind of unfamiliar with, like, oh, you're handling that for me. That's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that. Um, and that did free me up to really 
right until the end kind of consider the installation and and how I was going to make these works kind of sing in that that little backspace and things like that. So, um, yeah, I heard oh, that. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, answered. absolutely. Wonderful. Maybe this is a good opportunity to open the floor up to any questions from our audience. And if you do have any questions, please speak up. Your voice will be picked up by this microphone, but you will remain anonymous. Can we even do that sort of like voice uh, disguising, if possible, if anyone feels uh, self-conscious? But please. Uh, not exactly a question. Oh, I suppose it is. Uh, so I'm noticing that one of the slides that's been cycling through here was a face and with these mushrooms coming out. And my immediate thought was, oh, cordyceps. And is that where that came from? <laughs> that's a really funny one because everyone's like, oh, the mushrooms. Um, what it actually is, is I started to play with, um, like, smoke simulation in 3d programs so like i rigged this little model up to have like little like smoke explosions coming out of it okay. i was thinking a lot about like hydrothermal vents and the origin of life and like all that kind of stuff way beyond me um so i think that that's the kind of themes i was working through with that and i was like i really need to just start start figuring out how to simulate stuff instead of trying to model it from scratch like to spend way longer getting the computer to do it for me than if i just tried to model it myself but you know <laughs> I learned a new skill so it's sort of worth it um, but I'm totally happy with the the other interpretations people have of that work I think it still kind of fits in with the general theme of the show and the work so so that leads to a follow-up question then another one of your pieces it appears that two faces are reaching towards each other with tentacles are there there's actually tentacles then? Or? Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time rigging up tentacles. I've done this for a few works. Like I did make an octopus lady um, at one point in 2019, which was great. Um, these are kind of just bare, minimalist tentacles, I suppose. But yeah, in the same way that the model of me is rigged and poseable, the tentacles as well are these poseable entities that I can recycle in other works. So yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll just repeat that question yeah. that was being asked about what 3D program you use. Cool. So I use a few and I am morally opposed to paying for software. So I do not do that ever. And I won't recommend anyone do that. Um, so for like the posing of my model and a lot of the simulations and renders and stuff like that, I use a program called Blender, um, which is just the vastest capabilities of anything on the planet. It's amazing. Um, but an extremely steep learning curve that took me a while to, to kind of master that. Um, I also use a program called Mesh Mixer, which is really cool because it's kind of aimed for kind of more high school kids, but a lot of the basic functionalities it gives you so you can combine models, cut them in half, mirror them, hollow them, and all those kind of things in that program. Um, and then very rarely I'll step outside of that. So I use a program called photo scan for all my photogrammetry stuff it's technically not free but you can get an education license um and then i use yeah like just just a bunch of other little programs if i need something really specific i'll just kind of scour the internet until i find something that'll do what i want it to do um how do you deal with drafts of your 3D work? Do you print them yourself at home before you send them over to China or? Nah. <laughs> um, Off it goes. 
goes. <laughs> Off it goes. And what I get, I get. No, I think like, so people often ask me, do you have a 3D printer? And I'm like, unfortunately not because the printers that can print in the materials I do. So I primarily print in resin or nylon and printers that print at the scale that I do will set you back like 100K and that's probably US. So no, I don't have a 3D printer. Um, for me, I have never really loved the aesthetic of the, the kind of desktop printers that's all like red plastic and you can kind of see the striations and I just, I don't really love that aesthetic. So um, I don't kind of do that. And the printing processes are so different that even if you printed a prototype with one of those, what you're going to get from another printer is going to be so different. It, it's not really a worthwhile exercise. Um, I think it's just like I've made a lot of 3D printed work over my career and I've kind of got a pretty good handle. It's been a couple of years since I've received something that I wasn't expecting. So I'm, I'm pretty good at knowing the model I get. I know what it's going to look like when it comes to me. So um, yeah, no prototypes, straight to real thing. <laughs> How have you found the sourcing to be from China? Has there been an issue around COVID or no problem? No, like they're pretty amazing with getting stuff to you. Um, so yeah, for a bit of context, I used to print through an American company um, and then I found this coming in China, which is super cheap. So it allows me to scale up because otherwise like, you know, one of the works in Primordial would have cost like 1800 US, which is not quite in my budget. Um, but no, I haven't so far experienced any delays in getting things, although I am mildly nervous with world events, but you know, cross that bridge when we come to it. Jess, I've got a question that I'm really interested in what I see as a bit of a shift in your aesthetic towards uh, the gold and the white, which to me evokes a sense of kind of religious iconography or even altarpieces. It's a shift away from the sort of glossy red that you've been using in recent years for some works. What motivated that change? Hmm. So I think like the, the first thing is I'm very bad at colour, I feel like. You know, I started out school, I wanted to be a painter, but it turns out I don't know what colours are and it just wasn't where I was going to go. Um, often I kind of pick colours for very symbolic reasons. So, yeah, I did a whole series called Love Works that were the red glossy ones and that, yeah, I feel like doesn't bear going on about. But um, the, the white and the gold kind of came into play. I got invited to do this show or be in this group show at Jam Factory and it was about people who use technology to achieve a kind of craft aesthetic in a way, which, you know, a lot of people are quite surprised that my works are 3D printed. You know, I get asked, like, oh, are they porcelain or this? And I'm like, no, oh, it's plastic. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that kind of prompt, as kind of vague as it is, got me to kind of think about that, the kind of visual objects that I was referring to, because I always have had this kind of love of ornamentation and, and, you know, old statues and stuff like that. But I, I kind of stopped and I was like, oh, but, you know, what what materials, what aesthetics, like, what are you trying to get at? So those were the first works I made with this white gold thing. And I was thinking of, yeah, these kind of precious religious social artefacts and things, the kind of objects that that would, I don't know, translate these kind of imagined social narratives and things in that, that body of work for that exhibition. Um, and yeah, I think I, I wanted to kind of push that almost altar-like thing in the show at Hugo. So I made these kind of 
shelves to specific measurements for each of the works. And the ones that sit on shelves at least are kind of haloed by these gold chains with little gold teeth hanging off them. And I kind of, yeah, I was thinking a lot about altar pieces and offerings and elevating these objects to be, you know, these kind of beloved social semi-pseudo-spiritual things that people could encounter. Do you have any other questions for Jess? I just wanted to ask, is there, when you get your models from China, is there much finishing you have to do? No. But you apply the gold? Yeah, yeah. so um, when, when you said finishing, I suppose I interpret that. For, for some models and materials you print in, like there'll be kind of support structures that you need mm -hmm. to cut off and sandblast or whatever. Um, the processes that I use... I don't have to mess around with that. Um, I do usually paint them all the base colour. Um, the recent works which have been in resin, you can get like little colour differences in the resin, which is really interesting from something that we think is just going to give you the same thing over and over. There is this kind of individuality to every print. Um, so yeah, usually I, you know, just coat them in white or something to, to get rid of that. Um, and then, yeah, the, the gold or, you know, in some of the works you'll see behind the chain and stuff is all additions I do by hand. Just as a last question, Jess, from one sort of horror fan to another, do you have any recent horror recommendations or something oh. that's floated your horror boat? Not like incredibly. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> um, not any hugely recent ones. I think the last thing that I like actually had the time to watch, because... This is the thing, when my children were babies, it was fantastic because I'm like, they're not going to have memories. I can just put what I want on TV. <laughs> like, do they even have the eyesight to see what's going on? Who knows? Um, and so <laughs> very comfortable doing that. Now, unfortunately, my son is seven and so, like, not, not ideal. Um, so admittedly, I, I don't get to watch as much as I do. I, I went through a definite, like, midsummer obsession because I just thought that was just the most amazing thing. Mm. Um, and then got very upset when I read, you know, kind of breakdowns on it on the internet that were all like, you know, no, like, you know, it's actually a really bad ending because she's getting fooled into being in a cult. And I was like, I thought it was romantic. Be quiet. <laughs> um, like, that was a happy story for me and now it's ruined. Um, <laughs> well, I think we can see from your works that are about romance that your, your ideas of romance trend to a certain direction. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, look, that's just... <laughs> A lot of films I shouldn't have watched as young as I did. But anyway, yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, that, that's my last favourite bit. Midsummer. Okay, great recommendation. Thank you very much, Jess. Can we please all uh, thank Jess for her time here?